Hello you, welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about American Psycho. We're talking about it with our great friend Esme Wang. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. American Psycho is a 2000, that is the year 2000, satirical psychological horror film directed by Mary Heron, who co-wrote the screenplay with Guinevere Turner. It is based on the 1991 novel by Brett Easton Ellis. It stars Christian Bale as Patrick Bateman, a New York City investment banker who leads a double life as a serial killer. Or does he? That's added editorialization uh, to that synopsis that comes to us from our great friends at wikipedia.org. And Esme Wang is an American writer. She is the author of The Border Paradise and The Collected Schizophrenias. Esme has been on the show before. We're so happy she is a repeat guest. This is a fun one overall. Even though American Psycho isn't really known for being big fun, it's known for being a comedy in its way. And uh, we really unpack uh, the heck out of this one. So I am excited to share this episode with you. How are you doing out there? How's everything going in your world? Let us know. We're on uh, Twitter, The Bad Place. For now, who knows for how long that House of Cards is going to uh, stay standing. We are on Blue Sky, which I like. It's a nice, quaint vibe. We are on Instagram. And I, over at Alex Steed, make TikToks uh, based on our conversations here. So you can find me over there. Find us in one of these places. Find us in all of these places. Let us know how you're doing. What's going on in your world? How is everything? What's the last good book you read? How are you feeling? Etc. Etc. And don't forget that in these profoundly troubling times that you, my friend, are good. You Are Good is made possible with your support. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. You make the show possible. Uh, we're able to make this one of our primary life focuses. Thanks to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who supports us there. In exchange, you get bonus episodes. We just recorded one about Red Dragon page to screen more Hannibal talk for your ears. Uh, it was a buoyant conversation. <laughs> we had a lot of fun talking about uh, the book and the movie and the legacy, et cetera, et cetera. It feels like a perfect bonus for this month. So you'll get that a little bit later in October. All right, everybody. I think that's it from me for now. Enjoy this conversation about American Psycho. Hello, Sarah Marshall. <laughs> How the hell are you? Wait. How the hell are you, Halberstram? Beautiful. Put her there. Um, what's going on, Sarah Marshall? Have you seen any uh, movies about the extravagancy of 1980s New York lately? <laughs> Splash? Yes. We did, we did that yes. a few episodes ago. And also... <laughs> American Psycho, which we were talking Ugh. about today. And I feel like I have been preparing to do this episode in one way or another since I was 15 years old. Beautiful. <laughs> and who is with us, Sarah? Who brings us this uh, wonderful title? We are with my friend Esme. Esme, hello. Hi, everyone. Very happy to be here. <sighs> hello. You're our friend, Esme, excuse me. Yes. Friend to all. Friend. But I'm going to grab you and run away with you. I loved it. Uh, Esme, tell us about yourself and American Psycho. Okay, well, I am a writer. I am the author of The Collected mm -hmm. Schizophrenias and The Border of Paradise. Today, I am sitting in my office. The sun is coming in. It's the first day of the winter sunshine, as I like to think of it. Mm. And the first time I ever saw American Psycho was with my mom. Oh, of course. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I think we rented it from like Hollywood Video. Mm. And we watched it on, on my mom's bed. And I remember thinking throughout... Maybe this was not the best choice to bring to my mother today. <laughs> but then at the very end, as the credits were rolling, my mom just looked at me and she went, that movie was so funny. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> And she's right. <laughs> she was the ideal audience. It was so much funnier than I remembered it being. Yeah. I feel like this movie, like it came out and people understood it was a comedy 
in a critical sense, but I think that like it has taken 23 years for people to fully metabolize how fucking funny this movie is. <laughs> and this showcases, I would argue, Christian Bale as a comedic actor, mm-hmm. yes. which we do not see anymore. Yeah, yes. he's busy being serious and losing weight for things. <laughs> yes. And I guess I don't even... I mean, cry me a river, right? But I, growing up, I was numero uno Christian Bale fan. I wasn't numero uno, but I was like in the high hundreds. Oh, Newsies. Because of Newsies, right? Because of Newsies. And also he spent the 90s doing, and Little Women, and, the, and Empire of the Sun. And then he spent the 90s doing like weird, small, independent films and movies where he had sex with Ewan McGregor. Mm, yes. That was a great movie. Velvet Goldmine for anyone who's not remembering. Velvet Goldmine for anyone who's frantically Googling that. Which is how he got pulled into this. Oh, nice. Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) And then the joke when he was cast as Batman, which I feel like it's hard to remember now, was who the fuck is Christian Bale? Because he just like wasn't that famous as far as Americans were concerned. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I haven't watched any of his movies recently because I have given up hope. But like... I feel like all the movies he does now... Well, I don't know. I saw Vice. He was kind of funny in Vice. I kind of liked Vice. But like he did these movies he does now, I'm just like, Christian, I don't care. Be funny again. Christian, are you having any fun? Are you having fun? That's the thing. Are you having fun, Christian? We should send like a, a ring-a-doorbell clown to his house. <laughs> that would be fun for him. With a little telegram, you know. Right, because and, and people change and we grow, but like his early career is like these weird big swings in a, in a wonderful way. And this is one of them. And he was quite young. I think that he was like 26 the year this movie came out. Well, his skin certainly looked amazing. Mm. Oh my God, I did notice I was like, he's a young boy. Yes. Like when we had close-ups on his face. Esme, do you... What is your relationship with the work of Brett Easton Ellis, if at all? Mm. Mm, well, I, I, you know what? I, I don't love Brett Easton Ellis, if I do say so myself. A brave stance <laughs> I, so rare these days. You're really going to divide the audience. <laughs> I read American Psycho when I was in high school. My stoner goth friend loaned me a copy. Mm. And let me tell you what. It was a little much for me. He also loaned me The Rape of Nanking, which is a completely different book, but also very intense. And he loaned me his stack of Johnny the Homicidal Maniac comics. Wait, I have to tell a very quick story about this. Yeah, that's me. I was that guy. (laughs) So he was like, I'm loaning you the stack of Johnny the Homicidal Maniac comics. And so I read through all of them. And then I turned to the last page with the last copy and it was covered in human blood. No! And I... I just never, I just gave them back to my friend Zach and I never mentioned the human blood. How could you tell it was human blood though, to be fair, Esme? I think it was human blood. It was, I think it was, I don't think he like took some pig blood and smeared it on there. I think it was human. You can tell. Yeah, I see. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, no, I didn't love reading the book. It's so much more grotesque and upsetting than the movie actually I was thinking about this and I know we're going to do various kind of page to screen references throughout inevitably, but like, yeah, I was thinking about this, watching this movie again today. And like this movie was adapted by Guinevere Turner, the lesbian who has the line in this movie. I'm not a lesbian, Patrick, Love it. which is great. And Esme, like you, I read the book in high school. And may I just say why but i did (laughs) i read the whole thing i might have read it twice i was 15 when i read this book and we all have to live with that and i will always come out not necessarily to defend american psycho because that implies something more robust and prescriptive than what i have to say what i'll always come out about american psycho to say is i liked it um, I didn't enjoy it, and I don't enjoy it, but I do like it, and and we'll get into why. But one of the things American Psycho does that I think is really important and really rare is it depicts violence against women as, like, very hard to read. And that's what it should be. It should not be sort of glamorized and sensationalized and, like, 
kind of ab- abstractified and stylized. Ooh, the blood on the snow, the Hitchcock blonde, the hands and the gloves on the neck, the strangulation, the shriek, the dominance, the penetration of the knife. Like we have so much sort of sexy euphemism where stabbing women in slasher movies and so on is the sort of like paraphilia um, in American culture that we've completely normalized, I'm convinced. And what I love about American Psycho is that like it makes you feel really upset reading this violence and it should be upsetting. And it also goes on for so long that it becomes boring. Yeah. And I think that Christian Bale in the film is often perplexed by his own acts of violence. Mm. I feel like he always has this attitude of, wait, what did I just do? What? Huh? Why did I do that? Yeah. Part of this is his youth, but like his face, his face performance in this movie is amazing. And there are times when he looks a lot like his character in Empire of the Sun, which is to say that he looks like a little boy. Um, And I feel like that's a big part of kind of the way I viewed this story as a teenager and the way I come back and and think harder about that kind of thing now. But Guinevere Turner, I feel like effectively in adapting this book, I can't, can you imagine the day you like crack your knuckles, you sit down at your desk or your kitchen table or whatever, you get out your legal pad and you're like, American Psycho screenplay draft one, where the fuck do you begin? You look through your copy of the book, God, what where how what to do why did i take this job why (laughs) but it's like one of the best examples i've ever seen of a literary adaptation because she effectively had this 40 pound bag of salt and she had to take just a tiny bit of salt and use it to season this meal that the movie is Mm. if that makes sense the salt is violence yes yes (laughs) lots of violence and it opens, the movie opens with this very kind of Hannibal-esque, the TV show, Hannibal-esque opening where you're like, is that blood? Is that ketchup? And then it opens onto this very like nouveau riche restaurant scene. But I think that mm-hmm. it prepares us very much for the tone of this movie by having these globs of red and this like, mm, is that blood? Should I be grossed out? And then it turns out you're just at a restaurant with a bunch of assholes and you're stuck there. Sarah, before we talk any more about Brett Easton Ellis or a young uh, Christian Bale, do you want to uh, take us on a walk through New York of the 1980s and tell us what happens here? Let's take a saunter. You want to go return some videotapes? Yes, you want to let's go return some videotapes. We just got to return these videotapes. I had forgotten that that I thought that that was just like an iconic line and not a thing that's repeated at least four times. And I laughed every time (laughs) and said in increasing tones of desperation as well. Um, And for like a little bit of background, American Psycho is a book that came out at what around 1990. It's about the late 80s, came out at the start of the 90s. It was extremely controversial when it came out. I think its original publisher like dropped it or something like that. There was a hotline that you could call that I think uh, some kind of feminist organization had set up where you could hear someone read violent passages from the book as proof that it was like bad and should be protested. And so this like caused a flap. It caused a a bit of a kerfuffle, but it came out and did well enough to kind of, I think, become part of the zeitgeist. And it has remained there ever since. And so in 2000, Mary Heron collaborated with Guinevere Turner to make an adaptation of this fairly unadaptable movie, um, which was also met with a lot of dubiousness. And I would describe both of these as as cult classics, which I think is the best kind of thing to be, because a cult will never let you go. But if you have giant mainstream appeal and make a ton of money, you can be forgotten, you know, tomorrow. And so in this movie, we open with our main character, Patrick Bateman, 26 years old, great skin, great abs, beautiful tushy, having lunch with his friends who are almost impossible to tell apart, except the one that is Justin Theroux. at a restaurant that is like, I don't know, I guess this is nouveau cuisine. I actually, while I was watching this movie this morning, I felt that if I were not too old and and tired to become a YouTuber, I would cook all the foods of American Psycho. And that would be my thing that I did. Because just like, I'm convinced that in the same way that Brett Easton Ellis has said that there's supposed to be some 
kind of ongoing joke in the fucking endless descriptions of what people are wearing in the book, because if you actually saw those clothes together, you'd realize how much they clashed and how bad they looked. And I think that that some of these are supposed to be like intentionally weird and unappetizing recipes. So here are some of the foods named in the movie, including a bunch in the opening scene. Squid ravioli in a lemongrass broth, goat cheese profiteroles, that would be good, arugula Caesar salad, swordfish meatloaf with an onion marmalade, rare roasted partridge breast in raspberry coulis with a sorrel timbale, grilled free-range rabbit with herbed french fries, peanut butter soup with smoked duck and mashed squash, that one I would eat right now. Red snapper with violets and pine nuts, sea urchin ceviche, cilantro crawfish gumbo, pork loin with lime jello, yes, mud soup, charcoal arugula. So you do like a My Year with Julia, but with American Psycho foods. Yes, Sarah and Patrick. (laughs) So yeah, they're eating their horrible food and our establishing conversation is one of them being like, That guy is a Jew. I saw him in his office one day spinning a fucking menorah, which like really sets the tone for who our suits are. But Patrick Bateman says, cool it with the anti-Semitic remarks. So that says something about him. Because he's the boy next door. Mm. The voice of reason, says the guy who came too fast with Carrie Bradshaw. (laughs) (laughs) And then they go to a, a hip club and dance to, uh, I think, True Faith by New Order. Mm -hmm. And I think the scene in the bar also opens this opening gambit, this style where you're not quite sure if things are actually happening or if they're just happening in Patrick's head because he tells the bartender, you're a fucking ugly bitch. I want to stab you and play with your blood. And she doesn't seem to notice at all. Right. And this is like the opening of like, because he will do this throughout the movie. And in, and at this point, we're like, well, the music's really loud. She's busy. I guess she just maybe didn't hear it. And then we wonder more and more, I think, throughout. And so then we get famously into Patrick's morning routine. And this was one of Christian Bale's physical transformation roles. And he just really, you know, he looks like a Ken doll in this. I don't know how to describe it. Is that not how he actually looked at the time? Not before that. He used to go, you know, down the pub before he made this movie, but not when they were preparing for this. And I his body in this movie is so beautiful. It's quite distracting. He looks like a man who really does 1000 crunches a day. And he he kind of brings up this motif where he says there is no Patrick Bateman. Yeah. Tell us about this. I feel like this is maybe the iconic image of the movie at this point. Well, he's putting himself together in this very serious way. He's got a deep pore cleanser. He's got many scrubs and potions. He's got an herb mint facial mask. He is the original TikTok girly. Exactly. He says alcohol dries your pores out and makes you look older. He's making a get ready with me. He invented them. Yes, he's making a get ready with me. He wants you to come along with him on his day as he gets ready. Yeah, he could be an influencer. Like he's oh my like, God. He talks to us like he is a TikTok influencer. He's really missed his calling serial killer patrick bateman would so be an influencer like the serial killing would be part of it as well (laughs) anyway but yeah i like the idea that there is no patrick bateman because in this moment he is constructing himself he is putting together his face he is making his crunches to make his abs all strong and stuff he's washing himself just so there can be this very attractive Ken doll, as you say, uh, that is Patrick Bateman. And as the movie goes along, he will repeat this motif at different registers uh, in different ways. Yeah. And I, Alex, can I read this thing you sent me? Sure. In a 2009 interview with Black Book, director Mary Heron said, we talked about how Martian-like Patrick Bateman was, how he was looking at the world like somebody from another planet, watching what people did and trying to work out the right way to behave. And then one day Christian called me and he had been watching Tom Cruise on David Letterman. And he just had this very intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes. And he was really taken with this energy. Just knowing that this is based on Tom Cruise (laughs) is so perfect. Yeah. I mean, I see it. I see it. Yeah. And like the phrase intense friendliness with nothing behind the eyes 
describes so many people who really succeed in winning over the American public in a really interesting way. For sure. It's almost like they are American psychos. (laughs) Hmm. He is also dating a woman named Evelyn, who is played by Reese Witherspoon in a real Reese Witherspoon TM role as the girlfriend. Mm Mm-hmm. I think this movie would pair really well with Legally Blonde because they're both movies about Reese Witherspoon being dumped in a restaurant Mm. and making that sound, which is really funny. And then we also meet Courtney, who Patrick is having an affair with. And one of the fun slash horrifying things about that is that Courtney is played by Samantha Mathis, who, of course, was Amy in Little Women in 1994. And so it's kind of like watching... Lori and Amy and being like, oh, so that's how that worked out. She's appropriately bored with Patrick, I think, which is a good way to be. See, I read her as being like actually very attached to him, but Mm. just incredibly sedated the whole time. But I feel like her presence is like there's really there's a whole theme of loneliness and lack of contact in this movie. And I feel like she's a really important kind of maybe like the most consistent visual we get of that. She plays a very high person. And this was during the era when people felt they could just say whatever psychotropics they could to mean whatever. He's like, she's off her head on lithium, which is not what it's like to be off your head on lithium. But anyway. Right. You don't just like sleepily go shopping. Mm mm. Well, and like the men in this movie are presented like the specifically the men that we know are presented as like climbers and the women are, is, at least in their view, accessories to their climbing. And if I were one of these people who are strictly considered an accessory, I too would be pharmacologically out of my mind the entire fucking time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and as are the men because they're on coke and Price is doing steroids and, you know, they get to like have slightly different, they have gendered flavors. Right. This is okay. So there are two things that I noticed that were thematically running through the movie. One is that they mentioned the Trumps at least three times. Yeah. Yeah. He really wants to see the Trumps. (laughs) Yes. He really wants to see the Trumps. He's always like, is that Donald Trump's car or whatever? Or is that Ivana Trump? Which I think is indicative of when this movie is supposed to be set. It was a real Trump Mm -hmm. New York era. It was like, I don't know, like the era when Trump could like most credibly appear like he was making money, although we now know he really wasn't. Mm -hmm. But good for somebody. I don't know. I also noticed that there was a weird run through of Les Mis. He mentions that he'll, he'll be at a matinee of Les Mis. And I had noticed earlier in the movie that there was a little like mini poster of Les Mis. Well, Les Mis is referenced in the first scene of the book, I think, or the first sentence of the book, because there's a description of a bus going by with a the Les Mis poster with like whoever's on there, Eponine, um, and the word dyke scrawled across it. I think that's the book's first sentence. Does he identify with Jean Valjean? Why is he so into Les Mis? To me, the thing that is sticking out at this point is like, you know, you talking about the Trump stuff, like Art of the Deal came out in 87. So like Trump is hot off Art of the Deal coming out and people really buying into the myth is like his whole thing. The entire movie is he knows everything and wants to get close to the most popular thing that's happening at that moment and like compare it all of the critical facts about them. Like he's like a guy he's going to love Wikipedia when it comes out because like he really wants to tell you like the base facts of everything that is out and like shaping the zeitgeist at the moment. And like, that's where I love the most that he's not Patrick because he's just like that there maybe is no Patrick Bateman. Patrick Bateman is just a guy who loves Les Mis because it's big right now. He loves Trump because a book just came out and he loves Huey Lewis in the news, even though he won't admit it to Willem Dafoe. Oh, my gosh. We have to talk about those scenes where he murders people while going on about musicians, because you know what it really reminded me of? I had recently watched Leon slash The Professional, Mm -hmm. and it reminded me so deeply of when Stansfield is talking about Mozart and Beethoven, like as he's preparing to murder these people. And this is so what Patrick Bateman is doing when he's talking at length about Wayne Houston or Huey Lewis in the news. These are, I and again, like, this is such a great piece of adaptation because in the book, I, I mean, I think he does, like, some of these, like, he delivers to other people in the book to some extent, but mostly it's like there will just be a chapter and the chapter is just his monologue on Genesis 
and then you go to the next chapter and he's killing people again. <laughs> it's kind of it's perfect to me that this was adapted by two women, right? Because like he's essentially just like mansplaining pop cultural events before he murders you. Which is my worst nightmare. Oh right. my god, just two horrible <laughs> things mushed together. Yeah. Two very male things. It's exactly. too much. They're gendered extremely male. <laughs> Do you think when he's saying these things that nobody seems to acknowledge or are ignoring that he's not actually saying them aloud? Or do you think it's supposed to be some kind of statement about how none of us are really listening to one another? I, yeah, I think that that's possibly in his head. I mean, the whole question of like the big thing that people always want to debate is like, well, how much of it is real? Is he really killing all these people or what? And what I think is that it's it's kind of irrelevant because either he's really killing people or he's killing some of these people or committing some of this violence or he's just imagining it and talking about it or thinking about it but in any case like if you don't know whether you're committing murders or not then like you still need help like you still need people to notice that like something pretty major is going on and nobody does yeah poor patrick bateman poor little boy next door patrick's going through it well, let's I, I'm going to synopsize a little bit. So because I feel like these are all like this movie is kind of has become as I guess anything that becomes iconic does sort of a collection of beautiful kind of snow globe moments that people know about. But the way they're all strung together is, is interesting, especially getting into talking more about how much it matters, what happens when. But yeah, so we, we establish his life. He and the, the suits go out and dance. And then he shows up at his job that he does not need to be at with his secretary, Jean Chloe Seveny. Here's why I think Patrick is insane and imagining most of this. He turns on the TV and Jeopardy is on in the morning. What the fuck? You know what? I wondered the exact same thing. I was like, why is Jeopardy on in the morning? We're in the mouth of madness, Esme, where Jeopardy is on at 1030. And we set off his animosity against his colleague at Pierce and Pierce, Jared Leto, who dares to have the best business card. And we also have the dry cleaner scene, which is like, we're starting to get ever so slightly mounting clues that, you know, Patrick is killing people, but we don't get to see it yet or that something violent is going on. But yeah, do you want to talk about the dry cleaner scene too? He is yelling and yelling at these poor Asian dry cleaner people because they are not able to get these stains out of his sheets and his shirt. And for the Newsies fans in the back, he can only get these sheets in Santa Fe. Oh my gosh. Yes. And uh, when they ask him what the stains are from, because they're very clearly supposed to be blood stains, he says they are cran apple, which, you know. <laughs> you know what, when you're drinking a gallon of cran apple juice, like lying on your back? I hate just like getting my ocean spray everywhere in, in bed. I hate it. I hate it. Yeah. And this is like what a moment where he like runs into somebody. And, and what I wonder is like, are those stains really there? Like, is he yelling at these people over some perfectly clean sheets? Yeah, mm, I like that. Yeah, because then that that would explain why they're so confused. And then we have the business cards at the OK Corral, mm. which is like, yeah, one of the iconic parts of this movie, I think. And it shows how much you can do with sound effects. It's the men at Pierce and Pierce comparing business cards, each better than the last Patrick feeling progressively more emasculated, like plunged into a cold sweat by everyone's business cards being better than his. And each time somebody like unsheathes a business card, it makes this ethereal like whoosh. I'm a huge business card nerd and I always get business cards made, even though I generally never give them to anybody. <laughs> so it was really fun for me to look at what was considered an excellent quality for of a business card the color is it bone or ivory or or whatever and mm -hmm. what is the texture what number bond is it it's great it is like a very like sensual thing that is being used for uh ego in this and so now jared leto must die and so then we see patrick talk to an unhoused guy who he's walking past and act like he's going to help him and then stab him but we kind of we pull back into a long shot very quickly. We don't see very much. And that is just like there's no trace of comedy to any of that. 
And the the book too is like spends a lot of time talking about kind of the extreme class divide in New York in the 80s, which is this book would actually American Psycho would pair well as a reading experience with Tina Brown's The Vanity Fair Diaries. Well, I think what happens in that scene for me is that it really indicates we live in a society that treats houses people badly and handsome people well. And that is the pure example of such a thing. I haven't read much recent Brett Easton Ellis, aside from essays, and I've actually quite enjoyed some of the essays, but I, I also understand he's he's kind of like a puckish character these days. But my favorite books of his are the ones that came out all right around the same time, which is Less Than Zero, Rules of Attraction, and this. And they're all just like, you know, to your point, Sarah, about like the murders of women being unsettling in the book, he just presents rich people as unsettling. Mm-hmm. Which they really are. Right. He's just like, if there are people who are unchecked in privilege, they will do horrifying things all the time. And and what I love the most about him, and it's done very well in this movie as well, is he doesn't have to tell you that it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. He just presents it as horrifying and he's like, sit with this and you will probably be horrified as a result. And yeah, we, we really see that in Patrick in a tremendous way. Yeah. And then we have our great comedy murder scene. And um, Alex, can you talk about the Jared Leto murder, after, which happens right after we hear about the pork loin with lime jello? Can you clarify something for me first? Mm-hmm. Is the ongoing joke that no one knows that Patrick Bateman is Patrick Bateman and they all think that he's some other guy? Yeah. The ongoing joke is that nobody knows who anybody right. is, right? So like people call Patrick by other people's names. People like businessmen see each other in cabs and traffic and like say hello and realize they don't know who they're saying hello to like this happens with everyone throughout the entire book and and the movie too yeah absolutely so he brings so he gets him gets him drunk at a meal uh brings him back home leto is nodding a bit and not seeing that Patrick is getting ready by uh, putting on a poncho and delivering the soliloquy about Huey Lewis in the news. Uh, Not Huey Lewis in the news's earlier new wave stuff, but his new sort of uh, stuff that has pop bona fides. He's like giving a speech about how like he's so much better now that he's a sellout, which is really amazing. And Jared Leto, whose name is Paul Allen, is asking stuff like, oh, do you have animals? Why are there newspapers all over the floor? (laughs) It's like the New York Times style section specific. I love that he recognized that it was the style section all over the floor. I love that Patrick taped down the style (laughs) section. Which isn't going to matter when all of the blood pours out of that body. But it's okay. You know, it it is nice to have a layer. So he is delivering the speech and covering himself in a poncho. And then with the most attractive acts I have ever seen never before used right, <laughs> right. that's this this axe he he ordered from like Williams Sonoma I'm convinced yes. he has the best of the best in the axe department that he buries into Jared Leto and and kills him and you know I was surprised too because this was a movie obviously this movie is violent there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of violence in the movie but because of the controversy when the movie came out it's another one of those movies that I in my memory buried the controversy with the actual text of the movie and so much of the violence happens off screen in a way that I didn't quite remember. It does the same thing that Texas Chainsaw Massacre can do to you where you're like, oh, that was so unsettling. And then you see it and you're like, it's not a lot of contact in this movie. It's not as explicit as I remembered. And we have a sex scene coming up, which also is was not as explicit as I had remembered. Right. I in my Mm -hmm. head, I was like, oh, it's going to get spicy and it doesn't really but anyway yeah the um uh jared leto no more so he picks up a woman yeah he picks up kara seymour (laughs) he picks up a blonde who looks bored a lot of the time she just got out of rehearsals at naked angels yeah and brings her back to have a threesome he calls to order a call girl and insists that she be blonde but then when she arrives, he is disappointed because it's more dirty blonde, isn't it? <laughs> but this threesome scene is amazing. Yeah, please, please tell us everything. Well, all you really need to know about this threesome scene is that it's really not about sex. It's about Patrick Bateman admiring himself while they fuck. It's all very clinical and unsexy, but very funny. 
And he's lecturing them about Phil Collins the entire time. Yes. And the only time it's so funny, because I guess like he's kind of directing, he's ultimately like directing a sex tape. Yeah. And for like a quick sec, because he says the great line, I forget if it's like, don't just stare at it, eat it when he's referring Mm -hmm. to to an ass. Christie's ass. And it's such a good line. And it was like for one second that I was like, oh, like, is he actually connected to the sex that's happening? And then I realized that that was for the camera. Like, that's not for him. Right. And he had just been watching a porno called Inside Lydia's Ass. So it's actually an example of him just like mimicking human behavior. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. This is like the star man of uh, serial killer (laughs) movies. (laughs) So yeah, so he makes his porno. They're fucking to Susudio, which I can't hear without hearing the South Park impression of Phil Collins going, boop, boop, bootio, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. And I mean, this is another great example of of violence by implication being, you know, in many ways more upsetting than what you actually see, uh, where they all go to bed kind of cutely. He's in the middle. He's got the girls on either side. And then he kind of wakes up. He gets up. He goes to his scary I'm a dentist drawer (laughs) and Kara Seymour is like, can we go now? And he's like, we're not through yet. And then the next thing we see is the girls limping out the door, grabbing their money and leaving. And it's just, it's really, I like how they handled it. Mm. I'm, it's so bizarre that this movie was written and directed by women because that basically never happened or happens. And I, I'm amazed that it happened for kind of like, like, can you imagine what this movie would be like made by anybody else? (laughs) Made by James Franco. Right. Oh my God. <laughs> Made by Eli Roth. Yeah, Eli Roth. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. So the guys are hanging out again, and Patrick Bateman decides to quote Ed Gein. Sarah Marshall, would you mind telling us about this little section? Oh yeah. Um. He says, and I I can't remember, but I I was like, is that an Ed Gein quote? It sounds like an Ed Kemper quote. Patrick quotes him and says, when I see a pretty girl walking down the street, I think two things. One is I want to ask her out, take her to dinner, have a nice time. The other is what her head would look like on a stick. And then nobody laughs at his funny joke. And he says it in this very big way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he laughs in a big way and nobody else laughs. You're right, Sarah. It was an Ed Kemper quote. He was misquoting. Patrick! I feel good about myself. <laughs> Patrick, come on! I mean, really. He. I mean, it is like, that feels very wonderful to have him be so bad at everything he does that he mixes up his ads. It is kind of perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, talking about him being like, he's essentially a yuppie hipster. Like, he's like an explainer of all of his favorite sort of like indie things. And one of his favorite indie things is Ed Gein, but he confuses it with Ed Kemp. Like, that's so funny. Yeah, he got the wrong Ed. There's a line that he quotes in the book, which is worth mentioning here, that was a, something that Ted Bundy actually wrote to his girlfriend about one of his groupies looking at him from the gallery during trial. And him feeling like he was a clam and she was a seagull and she was spreading hot sauce over him in her mind. And it's like, Ted, you're the clam. Yeah, that's fascinating. (laughs) Why do you get to be the clam? That's really, that is truly fascinating. Also, who eats clams like that? (laughs) With hot sauce? Yeah. I like it. Yeah, I guess that's normal. It's fair. (laughs) But but not for a seagull. (laughs) Yeah, he's mixing his metaphors there. Well, anyway. (laughs) Esme, where were we? Uh, A guy slams down his new business card, which makes Patrick so mad. And then there's a very homoerotic scene, which I thought was very interesting. I fucking love this scene. And this is Lewis Carruthers, whose only crime is loving Patrick. It's interesting because I couldn't fully tell whether Patrick wanted to fuck this guy or not. What do you think? I really don't think he did, because this is one of my favorite examples of Christian Bale's comedic face acting. Where like, and this this whole scene, I think this is on the theme of contact, right? Because like Patrick, he's putting on his strangling gloves. Mm-hmm. He goes into the bathroom. He like puts his hands on Lewis's neck, and Lewis feels them and turns around, and he just like 
tenderly kisses Patrick on the wrist. And Patrick is so, I think, horrified and disarmed by this. And Lewis is like, Patrick, I've been wanting this for so long. But why here? I've wanted you ever since that party at Arizona 206 where you were wearing that <laughs> paisley whatever. And Patrick like goes to the sink and is scrubbing his hands with his gloves still on, looking in the mirror with like, again, like the stricken face of the child in Empire of the Sun. And I think that this is about, you know, about like the intense homophobia of the time and like masculinity and the need to protect it and all that. But also that like contact is scary. Like this was a moment of contact with somebody. Yeah, they do talk about HIV a lot in this movie. It's kind of in the background, but it's, it's there quite a lot. Yeah, but it but it is like that little wrist kiss, I feel like has more like the presence of genuine emotion, I think, is like rare and scary for these characters. And there is also like there's later on a scene where Patrick meets a model named Daisy. And and this is interesting, too, because it goes to your question of like, how much of all this stuff is he really saying? Because they're at a club. She says, what do you do? He says, I'm into murders and executions mostly. And she's like do you like it? And he's like, he like leans forward. He's like, Oh my God, is someone going to ask me about my life? (laughs) Yeah. And then it turns out she thought he said mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. Which, you know, potato, potato, really. So, okay. So we have our, our scene with Lewis who sadly just can't get it started with Patrick. And then I feel like is the next big thing. We've got a private investigator who turns up. Yes. There is a private investigator who's looking into Paul Allen's disappearance. And this is Willem Dafoe, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And I I think that the way they shot this was that they had Willem Dafoe, like they would do different takes. And in one take, he would be acting as if he knew Patrick had done it or at least suspected him. And then they would do a take where he was just kind of like head empty, no thoughts, not worried about it. And then they would splice them together. And I I love that method of editing. And I think it works so well in this. Yeah. Because you just like never know where you're at. And there's a scene where they go out for dinner. And again, to the greatness of Christian Bale, like he manages to shake salt onto his food in a guilty way. (laughs) 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 To get back to the the off the screen stuff that happens to Mm -hmm. Christy and the other woman, he picks her up again and she's very reluctant because she says after last time she had to go to the ER, which is very chilling. It's so chill because mm-hmm. you're like, what? Yeah, we're like, what did he do with those scalpels and dentist things? He removed all their subcutaneous cysts. Oh, my God. I mean, I need that done. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, he so he picks her up and tries to get his redhead friend to have sex with her. Who is played by Gwen Turner, right? I'm not a lesbian. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. And things get a little over the top. And Alex, this this was a scene that made you kind of question the whole Patrick situation. Yeah, this is so he kills Gwen Turner. Uh, Christy comes in to investigate, sees that uh, Gwen is being killed. He chases her and it lands in her running down the apartment building stairs and him dropping a running chainsaw on her that he later indicates either again, like he was either imagining it or it really happened by drawing mm a little picture of a body with a chainsaw sticking out of its torso it's a real waka waka kind of situation (laughs) next to his untouched dessert but there is the confusing moment where so he's telling the server that he did all these murders and he's confessing all over the place and then someone says I had dinner with Paul Allen in London oh it's with his lawyer Mm -hmm. he calls his lawyer and explains everything that's happened the one person who should really pay attention when you confess to some murders, I think. Or maybe actually the last person who should listen to you confess to murders. Well, what do you make of that, that Paul Allen was in London? Well, was he, Esme? I really don't know. Or do all these guys just look alike? Yeah, no, I don't know. I guess that's the problem when you hang out with a bunch of white guys who all look the same. <laughs> it's a cautionary tale. I love the fact that Mary Heron made this and was like in and of the 70s punk scene in New York. And the only movie she had made prior was I Shot Andy Warhol. Mm. Mm, I love that movie. And you kind of see that like having this made by essentially 
what was like subculturally the enemy of the people who are portrayed in this movie mm -hmm. as a like they all look the same kind of like what does it matter it's hard to tell them all apart like they're all kind of in on a crime together I love that element of the movie because I think that it's like really it's a fun little re cultural revenge story. <laughs> yeah, especially because it's like it's about uh, people who I don't know. I mean, the, these people still exist in so many ways, but that the kind of the wild opulence of the 80s like did die. And there was a day when the party was over. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, after the the chainsaw scene where, again, he's emulating a movie he watched like things kind of escalate and we have kind of our big action sequence which begins with patrick going to an atm minding his business and then the atm asking him to feed it a stray cat my favorite part which he gamely attempts to do before an old lady starts to intervene and so he has to shoot her and run away and then shoot at some policemen and blow up their car <laughs> i cannot and i mean this to me is like where that and i like your theory that like it, a it doesn't matter if he has killed the people or not like sort of what the response is is its own thing but like maybe he's killed one or several people and his brain is doing this thing right now where he's kind of spiraling out because like he's not shooting police cars and they're exploding atm are not telling him to feed them live cats i do love his logic when the atm tells him to feed him the, the it's a kitten too that's like it's even better it's a kitten like it's like <laughs> he puts the cat up to the slot and then realizes obviously a cat won't fit in the slot and then he aims a gun at the cat going into the <laughs> slot <laughs> and you're like what is his brain doing <laughs> And then he has, yeah, this big, you know, action sequence. He's running around the downtown um, and ends up back in his own office where he calls his lawyer and leaves him a very lengthy voicemail, which I love. I love this performance. Like there's a, it's a, it's I think the best reason to watch it is to watch a great performance, possibly. And then when the credits came up, when I was watching it, it was like, why don't you watch Joker next? And I was like, no. Uh, no. <laughs> but like the voicemail he leaves, he's like, Harold, you're my lawyer. So I think you should know I've killed a lot of people. <laughs> and it wraps it up by being like, and I just don't know if I'm going to get away with it this time. So keep your eyes open. And speaking of great performances that him seeing the lawyer that the talking about like the lawyer being like, I had lunch with Paul Allen. Mm -hmm. To me, that's one of the great performances of the movie because he thinks that Patrick was joking and you watch him realize Patrick wasn't joking. And either Patrick has murdered a bunch of people or Patrick is delusional and hasn't murdered a bunch of people, but believes he's murdered a bunch of people. And you see his face change mm -hmm. with realizing that he is dealing with like actually a pretty grave situation mm -hmm. it is like one of the outside of obviously the looks of the women who are on the receiving end of the violence and who know what they're in for it's one of the only times that you see a person like respond to what is actually happening in the movie and i just find his performance really tremendous on selling the fact that this guy goes from thinking it's a joke literally one minute before to realizing he's seeing some shit go down yeah, and then we end with um, Reagan giving a speech about his role in Iran-Contra, which is <laughs> fabulous. They're playing that in the bar and watching it. And a slow zoom onto the eyeballs of Patrick Bateman talking about, you know, I can't confess to anybody. Nobody cares. It's more eloquent than this, but basically he's like, boy, this sucks. There's something like this confession has meant nothing. Womp womp. <laughs> womp womp. Thank you, everybody. And that's American Psycho. And like, this is a movie that, you know, I think has become more relevant with time, honestly. And I, I don't know. What do we think? What do we think, you guys? Let's unpack these groceries. Well, the, the biggest one for me is that, you know, you, you brought this up as man. This is one of the first things I noticed is like how obsessed Patrick is with seeing Trump because again like Trump's already a figure in New York and has just released like an international bestseller so is like the guy and he's like the finance scumbag asshole that these all got all these guys want to aspire towards and it's you know there, we have so many different versions of thinking about Trump and then thinking like holy fuck that guy not only became the president but is still like a driving cult leader to like 80 million people in this country yeah. or 70 million or whatever but the fact that 
that guy is defined by being a guy that Patrick Bateman really wants to see. Like the protagonist in American Psycho is one of the original like MAGA guys. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a really good point. <laughs> it's chilling. He was one of the first people to buy a Make America Great Again hat. Yes. <laughs> Except it would mess up his hair, so probably he wouldn't wear it. <laughs> right, absolutely. But you wonder about this because he does, I don't know, but he claims to care about aesthetics, but you can tell he doesn't actually appreciate them. So what? So would the hat, would he have a speech about how the hat is actually like aesthetically good? <laughs> Just like something to mention about the book is that there is name brand after name brand. Sometimes paragraphs are just entire lists of name brands and designers. It's a huge element of the book. And it's something I think about a lot when authors talk about how they don't like to use name brands or brand names in their books because it sets something in time too closely. And Brett mm. Easton Ellis is like, fuck that. I'm going right for it. Yeah. And it's like what a it's a recognition of just sort of like how much the name brand has become a part of the actual text. Like it doesn't have to be something that's set aside. It's like it it makes up this universe of like how power is shared in their everyday lives. And I wasn't joking earlier. I mean, like he speaks like an influencer. Like obviously this was commentary on like look at the yuppies just be yuppies it's horrifying it's as if they're horrify as horrifying as like serial killers and then the people in their circles won't notice but patrick bateman becomes so much more normalized now like if you just take the killing out this guy is a successful influencer even with the killing in and so much of it being about his identity being cobbled together by lots of different products and rituals yeah. and routines right. that influencers do that's the really recognizable thing and it feels like actually as media has become more fractured and we live in increasingly different worlds in that sense like the things that have the power to actually not unite us but at least give us something in common are brands which is very dangerous Mm -hmm. Oh, God. And I just thought of something else. Speaking of influencers is when he's having that threesome scene and keeps looking in the mirror. Is that not just like an elaborate selfie? That's <laughs> happening? Right. It's a tableau vivant. Yeah, he's making that for an audience. And in that case, the audience is him, which is also sort of an extremely sort of now thing is it's like I'm making this for my fans. But really, it's like you seeing yourself through the eyes of an audience. Yeah. And I feel like to an extent that I do not understand because I don't care to because it'll depress me like Patrick Bateman has become like to some degree kind of like an icon for some horrible guys on the Internet. And it's like, no, is it, the point of this character is that he's like a tragic clown who, you know, is sort of locked in the cycle of mimicry and rage and like that there's nothing good happening there okay i have a question for you yeah imagine you're a 20 something mm -hmm. you've just gone on a date with this guy this is for both of you okay and you enter his room first of all there's a mattress on the floor but anyway and you see a giant poster above his bed it's american psycho or it's clockwork orange which is more upsetting <laughs> uh Oh God! Ni uh, neither, both. I'm not. I'm not going in there. <laughs> I don't know. That's such. That's a g fabulous question. That's a fabulous question. I mean, I think you can imagine the disciple of either of those movies essentially doing the same thing in a slightly different direction, but ultimately doing the same thing. Yeah. Which is like not picking up the commentary and leaning into the yep. uh what they think is like the anti-hero situation i mean i think i would mm -hmm. pay, i would choose a clockwork orange because at least then he knows who malcolm mcdowell is <laughs> i like that answer i this is why i'm so adverse to joker i and i ha, and i will admit i haven't seen joker mm -hmm. and i believe it's i believe that uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance is, is marvelous mm -hmm. I, based on what I've been told I bet all that but it's another one of those things I'm old enough at this point to have lived through so many media cycles of people loving a movie for the wrong reasons Taxi Driver is totally one of those movies Wall Street yeah. very of this time like Oliver Stone having to deal with people being like yeah I watched Wall Street and it made me want to work on Wall Street and him being like do you remember that that movie ends with the main character going to prison yeah 
Breaking Bad, Don Draper. And, the, and there's a trend we can see here, right? These are all movies about men who acquired power through violence and destruction and became tragic figures who ultimately were destroyed as a direct result of their own rise to power. But guys, especially teenage boys, I guess, love to watch the first three quarters of something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fight Club had the same fate. This isn't a B, um, Brad Pitt and Fight Club mm -hmm. movie. This is like being critical of capitalism. <laughs> Come on, boys, get it together. Watch to the end of a movie sometime. Girls do it all the time with Titanic. <laughs> Girls always watch to the end of the movie because the end of the movie is where the guy says, it was you. It was always you. That's right. This doesn't have that. Shocking <laughs> no. He has it with Reagan. Yeah, I don't know how you're supposed to leave this movie. Like, I don't I, I'm not really sure how you're supposed to feel by the end of the film. Yeah. The thing that like makes me feel that way especially is it coming out in the year 2000. Like mm -hmm. the book being like the the 80s just happened. Here's my take on like sort of like the aspirational archetype of the 80s and you know, you take it to its logical conclusion, it's either someone who's out of their mind or a deranged serial killer. Mm -hmm. I get that. And I love what the movie did. And I feel like it needed 10 years in order to be able to like make that statement in a way that people might understand it. But it does feel like it's like a full decade before we're doing that. And I can see why maybe that message got lost on a lot of people. And they were just like, this is just a movie about a bad guy. And it's like, no, it's like really a movie about how fucking weird our priorities were in the 80s. And guess what? It hasn't changed. It's actually just worse. Right. Because Alex, if you pointed out recently, now our lives aren't decided by the whims of millionaires. They're decided by the whims of billionaires. Yes, exactly. Like, I think that there's some sense that like the 80s sort of evened out or like tempered a little bit or it was like the height of something. And it ju I just feel like it just reinvested itself in other things. You know, an Elon Musk character is like the 80s on PCP. <laughs> Yeah, like, where is the Bitcoin? Where is, you know? God. You know, it feels like it feels in a lot of ways like Dr. Strangelove in that it's this other look at like our biggest enemy and the enemy is, is you know, sort of like the calls coming from inside the house. Mm -hmm. And if you watch it the wrong way, you could leave thinking the enemy is actually a hero. Yeah, the call is coming from inside the house. It's looking in the mirror, flexing its biceps and fucking. <laughs> and not even enjoying a potentially lovely sexual experience. Yeah, no, he does not. He's not getting off. No, he's so obsessed with seeing him his weird grin. I mean, to compare this again to reading the book, that like the main difference, I would say, is that like this movie really goes down easy. You know, it's like a pleasure mm -hmm. to watch. The scenes are enjoyable. Mm -hmm. It's very funny. Mm -hmm. The needle drops are very satisfying. Like it's just it's an enjoyable movie, which to make money as a movie, you pretty much have to be. And the book is like a grueling experience. Yes. It is about 400 pages long. And I and, you know, and to, to speak of kind of the differences between types of media, like I think that movies and books are immersive in different ways. But I think that books can immerse you and keep you immersed for long enough based on just how long it takes to read them, especially for someone like me. I am a very slow reader where by the time you emerge, like your eyes have really adjusted to the cave. And just the level and the extreme detail of the violence in the book and also like the way he describes sex there's a lot of descriptions of sex that just sound like porn summaries and just feel also very martian and the amount that your brain just feels like it is sanded <laughs> the entire time you're reading that like by the end it's like you just emerge you know i don't think that the book would go so far as to say that it necessarily has a moral aside from this is a fairly faithful depiction of the world as a very privileged slice of people was experiencing it for a time, including the author, and how much it's possible to suffer and have your cheese fall fully off your cracker in America without anybody noticing it or intervening. <laughs> I guess the fact that like that the book is like such a harsh experience for the reader, like I applaud it for that. Right. Mm -hmm. If you like being unhappy you should read American Psycho. 
Yeah, and how what a brave statement to say Patrick Bateman is the true victim in the world of American Psycho. Oh, come on. <laughs> My opponent is uh yeah, but 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 right, and then that is like a needle that you have to thread where it's like this is what we're dealing with now, right? Where there's this idea of like, oh, if only people would have sex with teenage boys, they would be less violent. It's like, I don't really think that that's the solution, you guys. But it's also worth noting that Patrick's whole deal is that like, no one sees him, no one hears him, no one will take his confession. It's like, Patrick, go to therapy, go to a clinic, like go to someone whose job it is to listen to people talk about their problems you know it's i know it's the 80s but it's worth a try you have so much money you can spend it on a 500 dollars an hour clinician right well it's like his options right are and i think this is what we're speaking to you but like he could afford it obviously but he can't afford it socially because if any of those guys find out he's going to therapy his career is going to be over his goose is cooked well he has to do it downtown he won't see anyone he knows there yeah, it's you have. I mean, it's fascinating in that you have all the resources in the world, but like your options that you have let open for yourself as a means of succeeding in a very specific sort of way are very few. You know, you turn yourself into a monster in order to get uh, things that monsters want. Hmm. Right. And then it's like, you know, and this is about this world where people are sort of at the top of the heap surrounded by these objects, which are supposed to be evidence of their own happiness and the enviableness of their lives and are we supposed to pity the people who shouldn't be sad despite what all they have or i guess just like feel like yeah it's good that you're unhappy up there so come down from there and be unhappy in a you know more modest surroundings (laughs) well when i when i really think out please bear with me for a moment but when i really think of trump i think it's sad i think i know everything i know about his life his family life his dad of course it's sad happy people don't do things he does (laughs) i think it's all tremendously tragic you know it's incredibly sad i have great sympathy It's the second you start to wield that sadness powerfully and then hurt the people around you that I'm like, okay, I I am sad. However, Mm -hmm. (laughs) cut the fucking shit. Like you have to stop because you're hurting people. Well, you're not an enabler. I mean, he's he's like Grendel. He's Grendel. He's Grendel the monster. You know, he's he's just he's upset that no one's invited him to the banquet and he's going to trash your great hall grendel goes into the village and the vikings are like how are you doing halberstram <laughs> it's like i'd be a whole lot better if you invited me to your party <laughs> <laughs> oh, tell me my business card looks nice <laughs> he just wants people to recognize his business card as being nice <laughs> can you imagine if he was talking to one of those people and then they were like you know what that is a really interesting thought about huey New- lewis and the news let's uh, talk about our favorite albums for a while well but that's the this tremendous thing that we we missed here Uh, not missed but it didn't come up in the conversation is he does have that opportunity with willem dafoe who unfortunately is also pursuing him potentially legally so he doesn't there's this like tragic moment where willem dafoe is like i love huey lewis oh yes Mm -hmm. and he too loves huey lewis and this but he can't acknowledge that he does it's the one person he can't talk about huey lewis with so sad he almost had a friend he could have been willem dafoe's friend minus probably maybe he murdered a bunch of people or thinks he murdered a bunch of people i tend to believe the read that Willem Dafoe is just like a terrible private detective <laughs> and just has no fucking clue and just likes his his he kind of wants to be friends with Patrick yeah what there there's like chatter I haven't read the book in forever and I don't know how much it handles it mm-hmm. we talked about it in passing in the movie but what is the book if at all saying about AIDS oh it just comes up a lot as like kind of an anxiety of the time and like you know the guy is talking about having to have safe sex with women and naturally it'll up you know a a nice heaping topping of homophobia on the whole thing as Mm -hmm. you would imagine which of course and of course brett easton ellis uh gay so a a tough time to be a young guy in new york you can imagine yeah this book works for me and i think that there's something universal in america about the problem of loneliness and i i do believe that like that's what the story fundamentally is is about isolation and that without taking part in any of the kind of like false narratives about 
how we need to privilege the pain of incels in order to fix America. Like, I don't know, I think we can see kind of that America is designed and organized in such a way that everybody gets a lot of loneliness and it's not good for any of us. Yeah, I would agree. I think every character is quite siloed. I cannot (laughs) think of two people who have any real intimacy or connection in this movie. Yeah. Well, maybe Evelyn and that lady whose bracelet she admires, but probably not. (laughs) Well, we know that as far as I can tell, we have no fathers in this universe. However, there may be a daddy in American Psycho, according to you, Esme. Who would that be? Um, okay, so the the daddy of the film is Huey Lewis. <laughs> That's tremendous. That's perfect. Okay, how come? Because he he had a real pop career and it was very important to people who were interested in music in the 80s. So what can be more daddy than bringing tunes to the ears of the youth of today <laughs> and yesterday? It's so true. And also, and, you know, and that kids still love Huey Lewis because that... Sesame Street hip to be a square animation still gets airtime. Oh, really? oh my god, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. The timelessness of the true daddy like Huey Lewis <laughs> cannot be overestimated. I'm going to pick uh, Guinevere Turner, not just for having done an amazing job, as everyone has said, with regard to this adaptation, but because in the adaptation that she wrote, she wrote in a line for herself where she said, I am not a lesbian, but she is a lesbian. (laughs) And brava. And that also means that the word lesbian is in this movie, you know? Yeah. I like it when you're watching a movie and someone says lesbian. I agree. Me too. (laughs) Yeah, it was a real surprise. It's like eating some chocolates and finding a gooey center when you weren't expecting it. Uh Uh-huh. My daddy is the city of Toronto, which is doing such a good job being 80s New York in this movie and which always shows up and gives some kind of big American city. We ask so much of it. It does a pretty good job. (laughs) It's a really clean city and they have good nachos. Oh, I have not had nachos there. And this well, and this also like this movie takes place in the tri-state saw area where we are in new york new jersey but every character who isn't super important to the movie has a canadian accent Mm. and that's the new york i want to go to (laughs) (laughs) all right everybody that is it for this week's episode of you are good a feelings podcast about movies thank you so much to esme for joining us to talk about American Psycho. I can't wait until you join us again. We love you so much, Esme. Thank you so much to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing this episode. Miranda is now the producer of You Are Good. Welcome aboard. Again, you've already been aboard, but welcome, I don't know, uh, more aboard. Carolyn is still involved uh, in the production of the family of shows. She's overseeing production here, uh, but she is spreading her wings in podcast production with more and more projects. So we are so happy to have Miranda overseeing a week to week production of the show. Miranda, you're the best. We love you so much. We are so glad that you are here. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make our episodes sound so sweet. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thank you for listening. Thanks for following us on the various socials. Thank you for supporting us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. We appreciate that you help make this whole thing possible. And hey, the world is a scary place sometimes. Uh, It's especially scary right now. The forces that uh, make it scary are are flexing, it seems. And uh, I would hate for you to forget in the middle of all of that because it can be so disorienting and destabilizing and uh, demoralizing and terrifying. I hope that you are not forgetting that you, my friend, are good. Good.